Good morning. My name is Mike Mathis. If we haven't met, it is my great privilege to be preaching Psalm 96 this morning. So before we get into it, though, there's a quick announcement. Stanley mentioned it at the beginning of the service, but just in case you missed it, next Sunday at 1.30, so November 26, we're going to have our church picnic over at Zabil Park. You can actually see it on, on the back of the bulletin. So the church will be provide. it's at 1.30, we'll be providing biryani and water. And so we want you to, to plan to come join us. Everyone is welcome to come. And so if, if you want, if you're able uh, to bring a side or a dessert or drinks to share with everyone, that would be great. But we'll have biryani, water, and come hang out with us. Come fellowship with us. And we can enjoy that the, the weather's a little bit cooler now. So that's 1.30 next Sunday, the, the 26th, over at Zabil Park. So for a little while now, we've been, Pastor Dave's been preaching through Romans 6 and 7, these great gospel truths that we see there. Um, A few weeks ago, former Pastor Scott Zeller came and preached from Luke 4, the offense of the mission that Jesus did come for people from all nations. And even a couple weeks ago, Pastor John Butchin preached from Ephesians 2 that there is no longer Jew and Gentile, the the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, that there's our identity, remembering that, recalling that we're one in Christ. And so we're going to see some similar themes in Psalm 96 today as we look at that together. It's an Old Testament psalm that exhorts God's people to sing, and as we do that, to declare God's glory among the nations. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask that he would help us behold wonderful things this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for Jesus. We praise you this morning for your word and that it's true. We praise you this morning that we can gather, that we can worship. Would you help us this morning behold wonderful things in your word Father, by your spirit, would you change us? Would you give us courage to declare Christ's glory among the nations? Father, would there be men and women hearing this this morning that you would send out to declare this to the nations? As a church, would you give us a deep desire to see that happen, to see you worshiped? And Father, by your spirit, would you save this morning? Would there be men and women here children who would hear, would see Jesus, and would believe. By your spirit, would you convict us of sin? Would you sanctify? Or would you help us this morning? We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So does anyone still read physical newspapers? We know we can get digital news everywhere now, even from from social media. So you don't see physical newspapers quite as much. But growing up, so I'm from the Dallas area in Texas. Growing up, my family got something called the Dallas Morning News, physical newspaper, and I started reading it every morning at the age of 10. Everything, that's, that's really odd, Mike. I, I agree with you, but I enjoyed it. I think what happened was at that time, there was an American football team there, the Dallas Cowboys, who had started to get pretty good. They started to win. And so I watched them on TV. I found interest in reading about them. 
And what I did find is as I read the newspaper, there were other sports teams I found interest in. And as I kept reading, there were other parts of the newspaper that I also found interesting, like the weather section. I'd know what weather was coming up. They had cities from across the U.S. I discovered that Death Valley, California is really, really hot. I also could see other things from around the world. One of the few that was always on there was Cape Town, South Africa. That was on there. Always had quite different weather than what we had in Dallas at the time. I enjoyed that. I would get up in the morning with a bowl of cereal and read the newspaper. As odd as that sounds, I, but that was a big part of my childhood and teenage years. One of the things I started to notice over time as I read it, though, I, I normally didn't read all the stories at the front page, but I looked on the front page to see what was there. Because normally, that's in big letters. It had a picture there. It could be political news. It could be something going on locally. Often it was international news that this newspaper thought was of interest. That's how newspapers originally sold. When people sold them by hand or you have them in a newspaper stand, you need something on the front page that screams, this is newsworthy. It's declaring something of importance. So as we look at Psalm 96 this morning, we're going to see that God's people are commanded to do something. We're commanded to declare and find great joy in doing that even something better than a newspaper, we, as we sing and worship God's people, declare his glory to the nations, to the ends of the earth. We proclaim his salvation. And we're going to see through this psalm, one of the ways we do that is through singing, it's through worship. And so as we, if you look at Psalm 96 now, there are going to be three main sections that we see this, that we'll look this morning. Verses 1 to 6, we're going to see that God's people worship the Lord. If we look at verses 7 to 10, we're also going to see that God's people exhort the nations to worship the Lord, the Gentiles. And lastly, verses 11 to 13, God's people anticipate the day when all creation worships the Lord. All three sections, God's people, the nation's creation, is worship. It's worship. And so we declare his glory. Amongst his people here, the songs that we sing, the things that we say, among the nations, people who haven't heard, haven't believed, and into eternity. That's the privilege of being God's people. And so before we get too far into Psalm 96 this morning, I want to give a little context because I think that's important as we start looking at it and understanding it. It's always important when we read Scripture to understand the context of, of what's happening right around it, how it fits into that book as a whole, how it fits in the canon of Scripture. And so the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, 150 of them, one of the things we find there is that every human emotion is present there. Joy, frustration, gladness, praise. We see despair, thankfulness. It, the Psalms, they're like a spiritual scalpel that reveals what's in our hearts. It gives us language, how we thank the Lord, how we praise Him, how, how we should respond to some of these things, how they all ultimately, the Lord, brings us back to worship. And so when we look at the book of the Psalms, within that, there are five smaller books. Books, and sometimes you'll see the headings in there. Books one through three go through a couple themes. We see King David's suffering. You'll see many of the Psalms, right? You'll see his name under them, his suffering and his reign. But eventually, towards the end of book three, 
The Psalms that were in the 80s, 88, 89, will see that exile comes. And their questions, does God's covenant to David, that he'll have a man on the throne forever, do God's promises remain? Is exile forever? Will he keep that? But then we get to book four. Starts with Psalm 90. And we see, starting with Moses, 90 and 91, there's going to be a new exodus. This promise, this covenant continues. There will be a king on the throne. The covenant's true. Eventually, the Messiah will come. We know it's Jesus Christ, the one whom all the Old Testament points to. All the promises find their fulfillment in him. Not even God's own people's sin can stop his promises. And so, within book four, Psalms 93 to 100 are a series of psalms about God's reign as king over the earth, and Psalm 96 is right in the middle of that. So who wrote this? We don't see a name attributed there. We don't know for sure, but many think that it was probably David. Again, we don't know for sure, but let's, I want to give us some other context. If we were to look at the book, book of 1 Chronicles, you don't need to flip there. I'll just kind of give a summary. 1 Chronicles, the second Chronicles, chronicle the story of the king's of Judah. As Israel eventually comes back out of exile, these promises are true. And so leading up to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we see that David had, or God had raised up Saul, who then tries to kill David. God had pulled David from the pasture to shepherd his people Israel. God saved him. He anointed him king, and he subdued his enemies. David takes Jerusalem, where God's name would dwell. And then in 1 Chronicles 16, we see the Ark of the Covenant, where God, God's presence was in the midst of his people, had been in another town for 20 years, and David has it brought to Jerusalem, God's presence among his people. And in this celebration, there's singing and there's dancing. There's celebration. God's presence is among his people in the place where he would have his name dwell. And so Psalm 96, almost in its entirety, we see in 1 Chronicles 16 with two other psalms there. That's why many think that David probably wrote this, maybe for this occasion. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's interesting. This whole section of the Psalms is showing the Davidic covenant is true. And immediately after the ark comes into Jerusalem, what happens? God makes this covenant with David. You'll have a man on the throne forever, which we know ultimately finds its fulfillment in the true Davidic king, Jesus Christ. This psalm proclaims God's glory, his presence among his people, that his promises are sure, that they're true, that he's deserving of all worship. Psalm 96 is a psalm of people who have hope. It's a psalm of people who have hope, that they're no longer exiled, that God's promises ring true, that we weren't exiled to Babylon, but if you're a Christian now, at one point you were enslaved to your sin and you aren't anymore, right? Just like Romans 15 that we saw earlier, there's hope for God's people. So we, along with them, we sing, we declare that these promises are true. And the gospel of Jesus, that is why we sing. That's why we continue to sing. With that context in mind, let's now look to our passage. So let's look at the first section, verses one to six. So the, the big idea here is God's people worship the Lord. 
We'll see several things within that, but God's people worship the Lord. Look at verses one to two with me now. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. This psalm begins with something striking. Three times, sing, sing, sing. It's a command, sing to Yahweh. The earth should sing to him. And we know this, singing is a really important part of worship, but something you've already heard here today and that we say at Redeemer a lot, singing is not the only way we worship. Sitting under the preached word is worship. It edifies us. When we offer to the Lord what he's given us, that's worship. When we pray together corporately, that's worship. All of this is worship. Every part of us that we offer to him, our lives, it's worship. But we do know that it does include singing. Let's sing about this for a moment. Why does music move us? It does. Why? Why? It seems to be connected to our emotions, and it seems like God designed it that way, that music would move us. He, look, he's always intended his people to sing. We see places in Scripture where the angels are singing. We look to singing in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be singing God's people for eternity. We were made to worship, which means we were made to sing. And look, those of us, myself included, who lack any apparent musical talent, we're not excluded from that. We sing because we, we're called to do that. We're told to do that. We get to do that. We sing because God is worthy of our worship. We were created for that. And what else do we see? Let's look back to verse one. We sing a new song, one that declares his praises, one that never grows old, one that will never fade. It, this, this looks forward, this new song that all of God's people will sing. If we look to the book of Revelation where the nations are gathered around the Lamb, singing what? A new song. Look at verse 2 with me now. Tell of his salvation. Think about that. Our worship declares God's salvation. We get to declare that to people. The good news that God reigns on earth, that his promises are true, we see many examples in the Old Testament of God's salvation. The primary one is the Exodus, where God redeems a people out of slavery and brings them to himself, gives them his good rule. We see God saving his people from their enemies many, many times, more times than they deserved. He's a loving king. He's faithful and he's true. His love is steadfast. We know he, God is slow to anger. All right? And many look at this and, and, and it, think it looks forward to, to Jesus Christ that ultimately finds its fulfillment in him, that by trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, we are saved Look again at verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. We always proclaim this, not just Sunday mornings. All day, every day, we announce this. Hey, friends, if you're a Christian, what a privilege to do that. We know it can be scary sometimes, but let's, let's try to think about it as a privilege. Do you see it that way? That you get to announce the greatest news in history. No front page news could ever match what we get to declare. To tell people that God loves them just because he loves them. Friend, have you heard that before? That God loves you just because he loves you. 
You, haven't, you cannot earn that. There's nothing you've done. He loves you just because he loves you. That's who he is. That your greatest need has been met, someone to save you from your sin. And now, for the Christian, we're given the privilege to announce that to others. That's why we sing. That's why we tell this. Let's look at verse 3 now. Declare his glory among the nations. Wow. God's people are told to declare this. We recount all that he's done, his deeds, his faithfulness. And the word here is similar to a scribe or writing. So let's go back to the newspaper illustration. Well, so I told you I'm from Dallas. There was a big event for people from Dallas about two weeks ago. Now, the Dallas Morning News had a full-page picture of this. That would be the baseball team, the Texas Rangers, won the World Series. That was the championship for, for North American baseball. So as a Rangers fan, I grew up going to games as a little boy. And so the newspaper, I don't, I don't get it now, obviously, but the full page, it was no articles, nothing, just a picture of the team celebrating, running on the field celebrating. That was a big deal there. But as God's people, we have the unmatched privilege to declare this. No full-page picture or announcement can ever match the news we get to declare. It's infinitely better. We declare that God is king over everything. He's matchless. We declare his glory, the weight, the riches of his character, the honor that belong to God alone. That's his glory, that he's magnificent, that he is eternal. We announce that he saves miserable wretches like us. That is something worth declaring. And we declare it among the nations, the Gentiles, those who have yet to hear. Friend, if you are a Christian, think about this. It could have been your parents, could have been someone else, but if you're a Christian, someone else declared this to you. Someone declared God's glory to you. Maybe a lot of people declare God's glory to you, but someone did. You heard that. Someone told you that. In Romans 10, Paul says, how will the Gentiles hear? And he uses the logic to say they're not going to hear, they're not going to believe unless someone is sent there to preach to them. That's how they'll hear. God's glorified his marvelous works of salvation, and it's a sacred duty and privilege of Christians to do that, to declare that. Let's think a bit again about David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, declaring this, God alone reigns. He dwells in the midst of his people. And what's being said there? Come and see what a people who's been changed by God in their midst looks like. Let's look at verse 4. Why all of this? The psalmist gives us a reason now. Look at verse 4. Why do we declare his glory among the nations? Verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. This is not saying that the gods of the peoples are real gods, but that they're worthless. They're nothing. Isaiah gives us this picture in Isaiah 44 where he talks about someone making an idol out of wood. And he says he takes part of the wood, he makes this into this idol, and then he bows down to it. Deliver me. And the other part of the wood, he cuts up and burns to cook his food. 
It's a bit humorous the way, and, and really sad the way he describes it, but the whole point, it ends by saying, should I bow down to a block of wood? That's essentially, friends, what, what every idol is. They can't see, they can't hear, they certainly can't save. Look, we turn to idols that aren't just a, 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 a false belief system or false religion. Any idol you turn to, friend, hear this, it will never comfort you. It can't. It can't protect you because they're made in our image. Every belief that does not submit to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is false. Every belief that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation is false. Again, it could be other religions or belief systems. could be money, right? The, the idol of Dubai, money. It could be comfort. It could be acceptance from other people. But friends, they can't save. None of them can. They're worthless, which means we don't fear them. Look, your priorities are going to reveal the object of your worship. Think about that. Your priorities reveal the object of your worship. And our hearts are tempted to turn to them. Even Christians, right? We have new hearts, but our, our flesh still struggles with that, wrestles with that. We want something we can control, something that we feel like maybe we can earn. Because if you can earn it, you're in control. The idols can't do that. But now let's look back to verse 5. The end of it, but the Lord made the heavens. See, God alone creates. He upholds. He alone is God. Look at the confidence in these verses. The idols are nothing, but God made the heavens. Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your, right, you have a good God as your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, you can have that confidence too. God made it. He reigns. Look at verse 6 now. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. See, God is clothed with light and with glory. It's the image of royalty, a king who reigns with all supremacy, with might and with power, with loveliness and with grace. He's elegant, he's magnificent, powerful. It's like the psalmist is running out of words here to describe this. Let's return to the reason, verse 4. Why do we do this? Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Because God alone is worthy of our worship. That's why we do it. And he's worthy of the worship of all peoples, all nations. He's worthy of that. So a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending something called the Advance Initiative Conference. And it, this organization promotes church planting by and among South Asians. And the first night, there was a video that we were shown and, and just a number that I, I, can't, I can't get out of my head. I've thought about it every day since then. And, and this is it, that 237,000, almost a quarter of a million, 237,000 South Asians a week die without knowing Jesus. That's just South Asians. That, that doesn't include the rest of Asia or Africa or the Middle East or the Amazon, just South Asians, almost a quarter of a million a week. should make us weep. There's great need. But friends, we have something worth declaring. 
We do. We have something we're declaring. We sing his praises because he's worthy of our worship, and we declare this glory among the nations because he's worthy of their worship too. What a privilege we have. So let's not neglect that. Let's, let's move down now to verses 7 through 9. We've seen God's people worship the Lord, and now God's people exhort the nations to worship the Lord. God's people exhort the nations to worship the Lord. Look at verse 7 with me. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. We see the word ascribe here three times. Ascribe can also be defined as to, to give or to attribute to. So what are they ascribing to the Lord here these three times? Glory, strength, the same things we've seen, the weight of riches of character, the glory due his name. He's worthy of it. But let's think about this. This second section, who is told to ascribe this glory to the Lord? The families of the peoples, the Gentiles, the nations. Those to whom the Old Testament, co- the Old Testament covenant did not come, but the new covenant has. We see this promise as far back as Genesis 12, where Abraham is told to leave his father and his family and go to a place the Lord would show him, that he would make his name great into a great nation, and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Paul tells us that what was being shown there pointed forward to Jesus, that the Gentiles would be blessed by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is not just a New Testament concept. Look, we saw that, what Stanley shared with us in Ephesians 1 today, God has always intended to redeem a people for himself from all nations. Always he's intended to do that. So we see that. God's people declare his glory among the nations, and now we see the nations responding in verses 7 through 9. Look, in our evangelism, we share the hope that we have in Jesus, that you have life, you have belonging, forgiveness, Mercy, grace, love, it goes on. But in evangelism, we also have the responsibility and the privilege to say, friend, believe, exhort them to trust Jesus. That for those that haven't, by repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus for salvation, you have life. So we plead with them, believe, trust Jesus. And we beg the Lord by his spirit, they would open their eyes and their hearts, their ears to believe, to hear, to see. We also plant churches. We plant churches so that people who haven't heard can hear and they can believe. Redeemer was planted on this side of Dubai for that reason. I know many of you were here from the beginning when that happened. If you've been around here very long, you'll hear the story, which is amazing. We've seen churches planted across Dubai for that reason. Many in English, some in Tagalog. We've seen churches planted across the UAE for the same reason. We've seen churches planted in Beirut and Cochin and Sydney. We've seen them planted in Kuwait. It's why Gulf Theological Seminary exists, to to send people out, to train men and women for gospel ministry so that people can hear this good news. We hear about churches right now being planted in Lagos, Nigeria, soon to be one of, in the next couple decades, one of the two largest cities in the world. We see the same thing in Mumbai, India. Large cities, rural areas, places where the gospel has never been named, places where the gospel's been forgotten. In the U.S. right now, the most unchurched, unreached area is the Northeast, New England, where the gospel has long since left. And 
we don't, it's not proclaimed very often there anymore. And we see churches again being planted there. We plant churches so the nations will hear. And as God's people, we go, we ascribe glory. John Piper has said that missions exist because worship doesn't. And what is the picture we see here? The nations worshiping the true and living God, worshiping the Davidic king, Jesus, whom all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in. Look at verse eight with me now. The Gentiles bring an offering and come into his courts. Look, when in the Old Testament, Gentiles could not come into the courts. They were considered unclean. But we see that here, right? This, this is looking forward that in Jesus, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. That all, at, the, at the crucifixion, the curtain was torn. That as God's people in Christ, we can enter in and approach God boldly. We can approach the throne of grace. So we give him our worship. We materially and with our lives, our service. So many of you serve so faithfully here. It's an act of worship. And we can come into his courts because in Christ we've been cleansed. We can enter into that now. It's a picture of the ark entering Jerusalem, right? God's presence among his people. As Gentiles who've been saved and cleansed, we can enter into that. And as the church, we too are in God's presence, right? We're no longer tied to Jerusalem, a geographic location there, but rather the spirit, if you're a Christian, lives in you and the spirit dwells amongst the church. So when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, we are in God's presence. He's here with us. We're invited to come worship the Lord. So look at verse nine. The nations will worship in the splendor of holiness God is clothed in holiness. We've been singing about that. This should cause us to tremble. A reverent fear. We're invited to come near, but with a reverent fear and an awe, a holiness only God possesses. But as cleansed people, we can approach. We've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. We're clean. We're free. We're saved. And the earth trembles. It writhes when it considers his holiness, this unmatched holiness. And then if we look down to verse 10, the end of this section, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's an exclamation. God has established David's rule over Israel and made a covenant with him. Yet the statement here is not King David reigns, okay? It's God reigns, points forward to the coming Messiah, right? God reigns. This kingdom will expand to the ends of the earth. And like we said, the Gentiles cannot approach God. So this tells God's people to go to them to share, declare this to the nations. And the proof of this, the world is established. It shall not be moved. God upholds all this. He will guarantee that it will happen. And then let's finish with this in verse 10. He will judge the peoples with equity. Seems to be pointing to the righteous reign of Christ that he will rule in righteousness, in fairness, in goodness, that his people will flourish under this good rule. Look, God gave us governments because we need that. As sinners, we need order. But his rule is not like any government in the world. It brings joy. We, we have joy being under his rule. And so as we sing, as we declare his glory, we also exhort the nations to join us, to come near to join us in worshiping the Lord who is worthy of all praise and glory. He's worthy of the worship of all peoples. So let's now move to the last section here, verses 11 to 13. God's people anticipate the day when all creation worships the Lord. 
God's people anticipate the day when all creation worships the Lord. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. The heavens will be glad. The sky, space, the cosmos, everything that God has designed and created worships. Job 38, where the morning stars sing together is a picture of that. Let the earth rejoice. Creation will find joy in God. Let the sea roar. Let it thunder and power with applause. Everything that fills it. The field, the land, the grass, the creatures. Let them exult. Exalt the Lord. This personification is giving creation the ability to worship. It looks forward to this good rule. Everything seen and unseen for God's glory. Look, Everything created was for God's glory, which means creation can't help but eventually worship its creator. It was made for that. Look at verses 12 to 13 now. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And look, there's, there's two things I want to point out here. When we as God's people hear judgment as Christians, we look to the return of Christ. We think about that. And there will be a day when he comes to judge all of man, all of mankind. And for those of us who've trusted in Christ, we await that day because we know we're secure. We know we will dwell in God's presence forever. We, we eagerly anticipate that day because we're forgiven. We have his righteousness. We're adopted as firstborn sons with an inheritance. But friends, there's a really serious reality when we consider that. That for those, if you have not trusted in Christ, there is a judgment coming. Our sin is that serious. It's that rebellious against God's good rule. Following false idols, rejecting the salvation he's offered, friend, hey, if that is you, look to Christ today. So if you haven't trusted Jesus, we're declaring his glory to you today. We're declaring, saying his salvation, exhorting you to ascribe glory to him, pleading with you, anticipate this with us because his promises are true. He saves, he's loving. Follow him, declare his glory with us. But I think if we look back at this text, there's something else we want to see. Creation looks forward to this day of judgment. Creation looks forward to this. Romans 8 tells us that creation, along with mankind, was subjected to futility, meaning sin affected everything. Creation is awaiting the day when Jesus returns and everything is made right. Creation waits for this good rule to come, this benevolent, kind rule. Look, all tears will be gone. All pain, sickness, over all grieving turned to joy. And this psalm bursts with anticipation. Aren't you ready for that day? I know I am. So let's think about this for a second. Why all this, as we've got, going, gone through verses, why in a song? We see similar things, like with the Great Commission, we see things in the New Testament, but why this in a song? Because song gives us language to worship the Lord. And songs stick with us, they instruct us. How, think about this for a minute. How many of you who've been here for a while, you ever leave after Sunday, either Sunday afternoon, maybe on the way home, or later in the week, singing songs that we sang this morning? Just think about it. I know many of us do. I see some people nodding. I know I do all the time. Songs instruct us. They stick with us. 
right? There's an emotional component to that. So God gives us this language in a song. It's meant to be sung and meant to be proclaimed. He's glorified when we sing. So want to glorify the Lord? Worship. Look, it's not theoretical. We don't find declaring his glory in a dry, dusty book on a shelf. We don't measure in a test tube. Any theology or scripture that we study simply for academic or head reasons or head knowledge is not glorious. It should change us. He's not seen as glorious when we're bored with him, but when we worship, we're changed. Through scripture, through his spirit, God changes us. And think about this. When you're worshiping, when you're declaring this because you've been changed and worshiping, someone that doesn't believe can't look the other way. You can't be indifferent to that. Changed people are changed, and it's obvious. It demands a response. So as we start to close, I want to ask you two questions I want you to think about. How should we respond today? And specifically, how should you respond today? How should you respond to this today? So, If you're not a Christian, friend, believe, trust in Jesus. I'll give you a couple things that we can think about. All of us should respond in worship. Overwhelming thankfulness and praise for what he's done. If you're in here right now and you're like, Mike, my heart is not, I'm a Christian, my heart does not want to worship today. Like, I'm in pain, I'm I'm hurting, I'm struggling to find joy. I don't want to worship right now. Friend, let me encourage you, trust the Lord today. Worship, even if you don't want to, because it's good for you. Because God says he'll meet you in that. Worship him because he's good. Trust his goodness and his mercy and his grace. He's given you Jesus. Do it because you know it's good for you. Worship the Lord. And my second question is this. For all of us in here, what role will you play in declaring God's glory to the nations? It's not an accident you're in Dubai. It's certainly not an accident you're here in this room this morning. You're exactly where God intended you to be right now. And look, all of us desire transcendence, something bigger than ourselves, something beyond ourselves. We all desire that. And there's nothing bigger than this. There's nothing. Look, if you're a Christian, you can risk it all for Jesus. You can risk it all. Jesus is our ultimate example. He gave far more than any of us could ever give. He came so that his salvation would go to the ends of the earth, that there would be people from every tribe, language, nation gathered around the throne. He's our confidence. He sends his people to do this. He promises his joy, and he's worthy of the worship of all peoples. So I I, want to close now with this last illustration. So I mentioned earlier the Texas Rangers winning. What I did not tell you is that they had three different versions of this front page, all full color, and they did have one word on it in huge font, finally. See, the Texas Rangers have been around for over 60 years, and they never won anything. Finally. Arlington is a city right outside Dallas where they're based, and the Arlington schools shut down a few days after for a parade because 600,000 people came. It's a lot for a sports team. But finally, people have been waiting for that a long time. And, and once again, 
this is better than any front page news. That the thing we get to declare, that we anticipate this, we declare his glory to the nations, we sing, we exhort the Lord and exhort the nations to worship the Lord. And all this points forward, something so cosmic in scale when all God's people, all creation worships in his presence forever. We wait for that, finally. Until that day, it's our joy to sing It's our joy to declare his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that just gives us language, gives us such joy and anticipation and and hope. Father, thank you for Jesus that we're not we're dead in our sin. Those who have trust in Jesus, we're not dead in our sin, but we're alive. That we have been brought near to worship. That we can approach you because of Jesus. Oh Lord, we just we pray for our own hearts this morning that, that you would, would break our hearts for the things that break yours. Would you lead us to worship? Would you lead us to desire to declare this to people that haven't heard? And Lord, for the nations, we pray that that men and women in this room today would be saved. We pray that the nations would hear, the nations in this region would hear of your glory, your salvation, your goodness, your kindness, that they would worship. Father, help us. Help us to declare this. We, We need your help. Help us to want to do this because you are worthy of the worship of all nations. We need your help, please. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.